Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. 2022 was a record year, and we just want to thank everyone who made it so special. We're already through our first quarter here in 2023, and thank you to all of our participants, our supporters, our donors who have carried that momentum of 2022 into 2023. If you're looking to run with us here in 2023, we are recruiting for many of our late spring uh, half marathons. We still have uh, the Chicago uh, spring half marathon open along with, uh, I think we have a couple spots in the grandma's marathon, half marathon um, in June, but we also have many of our fall races. Uh, we're still in recruitment mode. Uh, our New York City marathon team is unfortunately full. Um, our Chicago marathon team is almost full, uh, but we have spots in the Berlin marathon, Twin Cities marathon, Detroit marathon, those races also offer other races other than the marathon. And we also have many other races available to run for Project Purple in the fall. To learn more, check out our website at projectpurple.org. For those local here in the tri-state area, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, even Massachusetts, we'll throw them into the mix because that's not a, a far ride for us here. Coming up on June 5th is our annual Charity Golf Classic. If you're a golfer, come golf with us. We still have some foursomes and, and individual spots still open. If you own a business and are looking to support our Charity Golf Classic from a sponsorship opportunity, we still have sponsorship opportunities available. To learn more about our golf outing, again, visit our website at projectpurple.org. And also for those that don't live in the area and want to get involved, we've got our virtual series going on. We just got through our Purple Patties in March. We have our Dino's Double event coming up in June. Again, to learn more about that and all the great virtual events throughout the year, visit our website, projectpurple.org, and make sure to follow us wherever you are on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from bright and sunny and warm right now, Rochester, New York, pancreatic cancer survivor, Mark Head. Mark, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Dino. I think uh, what you do is, is an excellent job. And like many people that are motivated by pancreatic uh, cancer, uh, the motivation derives from the fact that you know somebody special, family member or personal friend who had this disease. And uh, it's uh, such an eviscerating illness that uh, it's, it's a highly emotional affair for many people uh, who have loved ones who suffer from it. I, I really didn't know much about my pancreas <laughs> or <laughs> pancreatic cancer until um, back in, uh, I'm an eight-year survivor, so I'm going to go back to the beginning. I, I, it was a typical upstate snowstorm. We got about 13 or 14 inches of snow. It was in December of uh, 2014, and I was uh, shoveling my driveway, and I had my snowblower going and the shovel, and uh, I thought I was suffering a heart attack. I uh, had an alien shortness of breath. I couldn't breathe for about 30 seconds, and I, I, I'm an athlete. I got the wind knocked out of me in sports, but it was always because somebody hit me pretty hard, and it, it, it caught me way off guard, and it was uh, scary. And luckily for me, all of a sudden it cleared. I could breathe again. Uh, I thought I had a heart attack. 
frankly. I, I didn't know what it was. And being typical male, I didn't do a hell of a lot about it. I, uh, I called in sick to work because I was fatigued after this uh, episode. I, 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 it was like I ran a marathon. So I went inside. I took two Advil and two Tylenol and went to sleep. My wife was home sick from work. She's a teacher. She came downstairs and saw me on the couch. said, what are you doing home? I'm one of those guys. I go to work. I, I, I never miss a day of work. So she knew something was up. And I explained to her what happened. She goes, what the hell are you doing sitting here? We got to get in the car. So I went into my primary care physician's office. And uh, she was talking to me. And I explained to her that I'd had a Charlie horse in my leg for about two weeks. <laughs> she had me pull up my pants. And lo and behold, what had caused my shortness of breath was I had a huge uh, DVT blood clot. And the, I, I thought clots were these little things. This clot went from my left ankle up to my left groin. It was oh. huge. And uh, it, it uh, must have been a big chunk of the clot broke off and hit my lungs. So I couldn't breathe. And luckily, my, my lungs and my heart were healthy enough to pass them. Anyway, my doctor said, you have two choices. Either I can call an ambulance and take you to the emergency room, or you or Donna can drive you. My wife drove me to the doctor's appointment. So um, I said, okay, she'll drive me. I went to the uh, uh, emergency department of my local hospital. I got the VIP treatment. First time ever, I never had to wait. As soon as I got there, they were waiting for me, and they, they said, okay, we're going to take you in. Obviously, you have this huge blood clot. By then, my left leg was maybe twice the size of my right one. It blew up. All of a sudden, long story short, I was in the hospital for 13 days and they were not sure if I was going to be okay, but they did excellent medical work. They uh, got me immediately on IV blood thinners and they put a filter in my vena cava to block any further clots that might break off. So they, they basically saved my life. And while I was there, they did all sorts of tests. They couldn't find anything wrong. And here I was at, at the time, uh, you know, 59-year-old, fairly healthy, athletic guy, maybe 20 pounds overweight, but otherwise, no health concerns. Why did I get the clot? So finally, I, I, I got tired of being in the hospital. I told him, look, I, I have to get out of here. And you, you ran a lot of tests. Everything looks good. So he said, all right, Mark, the one test you didn't have while you were here was a, a CT scan. We, we need the scan done. If you promise you'll go to your, have it done on the first day you're discharged from the hospital, we will let you leave. So I promised and I, I was good to my word. I went in, got the CT scan. I'm in my living room at home two hours after I got the scan. All of a sudden, my doctor's office called my PCP, primary care physician. Uh, it was actually the secretary. She said, Mark, Dr. Elgase would like to see you uh, immediately to talk about your results. And I thought, oh, this doesn't sound good. It's only been two hours. Usually when I get one of these, I hear a week later that it was normal, everything was okay. So I was on high alert. And then it, it here's the caveat. She says, oh, by the way, Dr. Elgase wants you to bring your wife with you. And I, I remember I thought, uh-oh, she's been my doctor for 25 years. She never asked me to bring my wife with me so we went in 
And I told her, look, doc, I, I want you to give it to me straight. I don't want you to sugarcoat it. What is going on? And I, I don't know. I had, I did have a, this, you know, foreboding fear that something was wrong because of what mm -hmm. happened. I said, Mark, I don't know how to tell you this. You have a nine uh, centimeter mass on your pancreas. It looks malignant and uh, it, it looks inoperable. And I said, well, what, what does that mean exactly? And it, it's like out of a book. She said, uh, you know, get your affairs in order. Uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? She said, Mark, th this is very serious. So I said, well, what is your guess about what's going to happen? She said, I, based on experience, you, you have maybe, um, you know, uh, six months to, to, to live. Wow. And I looked at it. I was like blown away. I said, how could this be? She said, well, we have to have a biopsy to confirm, but it's pretty definitive. Um, so they do a specialized ultrasound for pancreatic uh, masses sometimes. They, they don't want to do a needle biopsy because they don't want any of the particles to break off. Correct. So they, what's called an esophageal ultrasound. Yep. So she gave me four places in Rochester that did the esophageal ultrasound. and. Uh, told me to pick one. So I went through the list and now keep in mind, I was just told I only have six months to live. I called all these places. They were booked three months out. So oh I was like, God. you got you to be kidding me. I have to have this done. So I was on my last one and uh, I called and this lady answered. She was very mean. She was just uh, kind of an indifferent SOB. And uh, she wasn't listening. I, I, I had asked her, hey, is there any way you can perhaps bump a routine uh, procedure in, in favor of my situation because it's pretty dire. She she basically scolded me. And and at that point, I was so vulnerable. I, I, I dissolved in tears. I was like crying. So I got over my pity party and I thought, you know, I'm going to call this woman up and give her a piece of my mind. That was uncalled for. So I called, <laughs> I dialed the phone and uh, it, it, it they picked up on the other end. But it was a kinder, gentler voice on the phone. So I thought, I'll try my spiel again. So I, I talked with her about what was going on. Now, here's here's the, the weirdness. Now, I'm a, a, a therapist here in Rochester. I do psychotherapy. Uh -huh. So lady on the other end of the phone confirms, is this Mark Head? And I said, yes, it is. And I thought she was looking at my uh, patient file, you know, and uh, my Office is on Elmwood Avenue here in Rochester, in one of the prominent suburbs. And she said, are you Mark Head from Elmwood Avenue? And I said, yes, I am. She said, do you know blah, blah, blah? And she mentioned somebody's name. And I said, I can't confirm or deny. Because of confidentiality, I couldn't yeah, say She goes, well, I know you knew him because you saved his life. Her son was a, a heroin addict who I had treated Years, 15 years ago. Now, this is a weird circumstance. So she says, Mark, you helped my family. I'm going to help you. Let me call you back in five minutes. So five minutes later, she calls back and says, if you can get here tomorrow, doctor will do your esophageal ultrasound. I said, I'll be there. So it was wow. like the weird. It, it, my, my mother was a highly religious person, and she used to talk about the providence of God. Yep. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I thought, what a weird 
and and very good circumstance, you know, to to happen. So uh, I went to, and got the ultrasound done. The guy, the doctor was brilliant. He was an ace, and uh, he said, "Mark, you are too healthy for this to be an adenocarcinoma." I have a feeling this is a different kind of tumor. He did confirm with the biopsy that it, it was malignant. It was inoperable, and it didn't look good. But he thought it was a different kind of tumor. So I had booked um, a trip to Florida to tell my adult children about my diagnosis. My wife was in agreement. We got to get off away from the craziness of what's going to swirl. Let, let's get off on our own. So we had booked a trip to Florida, and we were leaving the next day. So the doctor said, keep your phone on. I'll, I'll let you know. So two days later, I'm laying on a beach. And uh, he calls and he says, Mark, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is it is malignant. It is inoperable. It's not It's not uh, going to be an easy route. The good news is you do not have adenocarcinoma. He ran some other tests. He was smart enough and took the initiative. And he said, you have um, a neuroendocrine cancer. And uh, there is a clinical trial going on at... Uh, the University of Rochester that has some chemo that's specifically for um, neuroendocrine cancer. So um, I agreed to do that and uh, made an appointment. So I went to my first appointment with the oncologist. They wanted to start me on chemo right away. My wife and I had decided um, that we wanted to go to Ireland. It's sort of a bucket trip. Mm. And uh, the, the diagnosis was still not good. So we made a trip, went to Ireland. Uh, the oncologist wanted me to start the, the chemo right away. I said, no, thank you, but no. Uh, when it starts, I'm liable to be ill, and I, I want um, to be able to function on this trip to Ireland. So we went, and uh, he gave me the old, I don't give you medical clearance. You just had a blood clot. You can't get out of play. And I said, well, God, the worst that could happen is I would die. You've already told me that's the eminent soon anyway so i'm going and we went to um uh, uh uh ireland and my sister-in-law who's a nurse came with us her and her husband all of a sudden decided to go too she was concerned that i'd have some medical uh you know incident in ireland and be stuck over mm -hmm. there so she they went along we had a, a grand time we were there for 10 days came back started my chemo and uh, they put me on capsidabine which is a combo of uh, a couple of things. And they also put me on, it was oral chemo. And I, I also was given Sandostantin shots every 28 days. So I've, I've had over a hundred of those by now. Um, and it's, uh, it's not an easy process. There's a 19 gauge needle that they, uh, they poke in your uh, buttocks every 28 days. And it, what it does is it competes with the, um, uh, the um, neuroendocrine cancer for their blood, uh, their food supply. The sandostatin sort of gobbles up the food supply that the, the tumor feeds off of, so it slows down the growth of the tumor. So I had two things going. I had abcidabine, uh, which was one oral chemo for the first uh, three weeks, which is, sorry, for the first uh, 10 days of the chemo process. And then the last four or five days, this other drug, which is uh, much more uh, caustic. So I had two weeks on, two weeks off chemo. I did that for for nine months. The first six months, there was no shrinkage. So I was starting to become concerned, obviously. 
uh, I was putting in the time, doing what I had to do. Nothing was happening. Three months later, they did a, a CT scan, and lo and behold, the uh, tumor had shrunk by forty percent. Wow! So, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing, and I, I was pleased, you know. And I was generally pretty functional. The last four or five days of the two week chemo's were tough. Uh, it was tough on my skin, and it was tough on my uh, stomach. You know, the usual stuff that cancer patients learn to to cope with. So, uh, I was pleased. And I asked the tumor board to review my uh, process to see if I become eligible for the uh, Whipple procedure. Mm-hmm. And I do I need to go into detail about Whipple here or no? Well, no. I mean, so I, I want to pause here for a second, Mark. So when you go through this, I, I get a couple of questions. So, okay, the the only symptom that you really like. <laughs> presented was this blood clot so prior to i know you said you were super active you were healthy um you know 20 pounds overweight that's pretty natural you know i guess I, we could say like that's like a dad bod not to uh shame anyone but you know i you know that's that's been a term i see i've seen floated around here recently so that's why i bring it up but so Health-wise, though, family history, I mean, and the reason no why I asked. Family no, so no family fa- history of pancreatic cancer whatsoever. And they, I did genetic testing. There's no mutations that really account for it. It's it's uh, it, it's an interesting cancer, though. It, it's not a solid tumor cancer. It's um, hormonal. Correct. It's serotonin-based. So, and, and I know too, with the neuroendocrine tumors, they tend to like present themselves in a variety of ways. I mean, they, a lot of them start in the pancreas and then they end up elsewhere in the, in the, in the body. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. sometimes you actually see that early on, but so like there was nothing cooking under the, under the hood, as we say, prior to this incident back in 14. No, zero. No, wow. zero. It came out of the blue. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you, you, you go through the, the, the regimen, they figure it out. Um, and then you start to see some, some positive results from the, the frontline treatments and the Whipple we know for all pancreatic cancer tumors, uh, adenocarcinoma and neuroendocrine is one way of removal of the cancer, right. To, to eliminate those tumors. Um, it's a it's a super invasive surgery. Um, you know, it could last anywhere between six and twelve hours. Um, it's some of sometimes they do a minimally invasive via uh, the robotic surgery option. That's become an option, uh, but it, but it's a no joke surgery, as I like to say, because it is is very intense, uh, very long, very complex. So, do you get to a point then where you have the ability to have the Whipple mark? Yeah, well, so I thought so. The local tumor board. Still looked at the location of the tumor. It was on the head of my pancreas, yep. uh, at which it, there's a junction there with a mesenteric vein and artery. They're right. the main blood supply to the liver, and it, the tumor was on top of that um, mesenteric vein and artery. So my local tumor board said, "Nah, too complicated. Sorry." I was very disappointed. And I said, "Guys, you led me to believe if there was significant shrinkage that you would do this surgery," and they said, "Mark, it's too complicated. It wouldn't be worth it." Mm-hmm. And I, I, I basically said, well, I'm going to explore other options. So I advocated for myself. My wife and I uh, did the research. We found out that Johns Hopkins 
did yep. the more Whipples than anybody in the country. So I sent, I signed off on all the necessary um, biopsy results and all the blood work and everything I'd done, shipped it off to Hopkins. Much to my surprise and excitement, a week later, I got a call from Hopkins and said, Mark, uh, we, the tumor board is meeting on uh, Friday. We'd like you here on Thursday to do some of our own blood work. And we're going to do a 3D scan the day before the tumor board meets. Uh, at Hopkins, they had three and four D scans. It, it, it's just incredible imagery. It's sort of right out of uh, uh, Pixar Studios. It, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing stuff. And they have the, the, probably the best radiologist in the country there, uh, Edmund Fishman. Uh, and he's a uh, guy from New York who <laughs> he lives in New York, but he commutes to Baltimore on weekends and he reads all of the screens. Anyway, they did the scan. Tumor board met. My wife and I are in this room waiting for the results. You know, we thought it was going to be another disappointment like it was at our local cancer center. And, uh, this guy strides in. He's you know not a real tall guy, but um, big in stature. Let's put it that way. He strides in the room and says, well, we reviewed your results. There's only maybe two or three other surgeons in the country that would do this surgery. I'm one of them. So he left the room because he got a page. And my wife whispers to me, I don't like him. He's cocky. <laughs> and I said, honey, this guy's going to cut me open, inspect all my internal organs, cut out what's not good. Sew me back up and send me on my way. I like cocky. So uh, <laughs> this, this guy's name is Marty McCary. Uh, and he's a, a muckety-muck. He, he was on Obama's shortlist for Surgeon General. He, he's just a very uh, excellent surgeon. So at Hopkins, his team only does uh, organ transplants and Whipples. That's all. So the surgeon in Rochester who wouldn't do my surgery had done 300 Whipples. McCary had done maybe 1,200 Whipples. So he was very wow. experienced. Nine hours of surgery. He Going in, now here's the interesting thing. And I, this is a nuance from adenocarcinoma. If they can't get all the tumor with adeno, they're not going to do the Whipple because right. they know it's not worth it. They put you through all this trauma, and then the cancer spreads so quickly that, that it, it it defeats the purpose. With neuroendocrine, not so much. So McCary said, Mark, I can't get it all, but I think I can get 95%. And I said, Doc, whatever you can get, pull it out. I, I'm up for it. So scheduled surgery for the next uh, week. And uh, we went back to Rochester, got everything in order. My wife went with me, thank goodness. And uh, we stayed at the housing it's adjacent to the hospital because it was very convenient and low cost and uh, had the surgery. So he did, true to his name, got 95% of the tumor. At that point, the tumor was, there were a few questionable spots on my liver, but they, they were so ill-defined and so small, they really couldn't say it was cancer. Mm -hmm. I'm glad they didn't know it was cancer at the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done the Whipple. Anyway, they did the Whipple. Um, on my way into, I should say this, uh, Hopkins streamlines this whole Whipple surgery. They have a Whipple recovery wing. All the nurses there specialize in, in caring for uh, Whipple patients. They have a Whipple ICU. 
and the team that did my surgery does only organ transplants in Whipple. So it was, it went remarkably well. I, 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 the, at Hopkins, they use a lot more drains than most, uh, surgery centers and it, it mitigates infection. I did not get any infections. Uh, one of the big side effects with Whipple surgery is there's a leak somewhere or there's yep. uh, infection. I had none of that. So I was in the hospital for two weeks. And then I drove home. Well, my wife drove me home to Rochester and I began recovering. So biology wise, unfortunately for me, the area that was left was right on top of that mesenteric vein and, and um, uh, artery. And it fed my liver the cancer. So I am stage four uh, neuroendocrine cancer patient. I I. I my survival rate is, is really good, and I attribute it to uh, the um, Whipple procedure that extended my life. The tumor was growing, and it was beginning to spread. Had they not cut the main life support, support source of the tumor, I, I'd be in, in the ground probably now. So eight years is sort of unheard of for many cancers, even though the five-year rate of survival for neuroendocrine is better than uh, adeno. It's still not great. Yeah. And Mark, I think one thing, you know, and we've talked about this. I mean, sometimes we know adenocarcinoma, you know, there's a difference, right? But this is the way I sum it up real quick is like both of these tumors are, are, can be fast moving and and they're both deadly. Right. And and so the, you know, sometimes you, you hear people go, well, oh, that's a neuroendocrine tumor. And I go, yeah, but it, you know, I've seen, Patients with neuroendocrine tumors grow faster than adenocarcinoma tumors. Oh, you know, you're so, right. Yeah. So the, the the risk is is similar. I mean, there is a difference. There's a biological difference. Um, there are different treatment protocols. Um, you know, but but the 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 risk and the severity of the of the tumor is almost. I wouldn't say identical because that's not fair to say because there is a difference, but the, the, you know it, it varies, and that's what I think is kind of the frustrate. You know, from an advocacy standpoint, it is super frustrating because all tumors for pancreatic cancer, whether they're neuroendocrine or adenocarcinoma, react, and patient outcomes are. are I mean, I've had we've had people on the podcast; they've gone through. I have one one person. She's like on her like seventieth round of flufluorinox, adenocarcinoma oh, stage four. You know, but then we've had people that do two rounds and they, you know, they're they're done. They're tapping out. No, that's <laughs> right. That's right. You know, so so th- my point here is like, regardless, I, I think regardless of the tumor, there there's severity, there's risks, there's complications. Um, you know, the Whipple is the same surgery, whether it's adenocarcinoma or neuroendocrine. I mean, it's a, it's an yeah. intense surgery. Like you said, there's, there's, there's complication for, for, uh, bleeds and for leakage and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the, the, the risks are all the same. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, like I said, with the neuroendocrine tumors, uh, we, I've, interacted with people in the last 13 years that, you know, I've seen the neuroendocrine tumor grow faster than an adenocarcinoma tumor in that late stage. There's low, medium, and high grade. And uh, the medium and high grade tumors really behave uh, very similar to an adenocarcinoma. And it is a rare tumor. It's 5% of all pancreatic masses are neuroendocrine. It's a very small number. Correct. So unfortunately, there's less money that goes into the research yeah. for it. 
And uh, so I want to talk about this. So anybody listening should write their Congress people and their House representatives and ask them to remove pancreatic cancer from the cancer bucket. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Okay. So uh, kidney cancer, lung cancer, uh, breast cancer, they're all standalone cancers. So they have a lot of money appropriated to them many more times than all the other cancers in the bucket. I think there's there's 18 or 20 other cancers that are in that bucket, and they split a designated amount of money. Pancreatic cancer, even though it's a, one of the biggest killers, is still in that bucket, and that's a travesty. Uh, we all know that the more money is put into research, the more likely we're going to come up with early identifiers and ways of diagnosing this very early. So anybody listening, write your Congress people and ask them to please vote to vote pancreatic cancer out of the budget. It's a money item. And of course, people that aren't affected by this, they're not as motivated to vote for it. But if they get constituents who are, you know, raising cane about it or calling in, they're more likely to vote in favor of what we want, which is to get early detection, uh, blood tests and uh, screens. Uh, also, people that don't have good money are, are really sunk. Some of the, the, the medication for this illness, my uh, Sandostatin shot is a, a $10,000 a month shot. And my Creon that I have to take for my digestive system in order to make it halfway decent is $8,000 a month. Now, think about that. Just in the, And it didn't even count my chemo, which was $25,000 a month. So cancer is a highly expensive illness, and we need more funding. For people going through it now, luckily, uh, I, I'm a, a, a middle class guy uh, and my wife worked, I worked and we saved some money. But we, we went through a lot of money seeking the treatment that I got and bad insurance doesn't cover any of it. So people are literally forced to side between their health or their financial solvency. And sometimes financial uh, uh, health loses. You know, Mark, you bring up so many important points. Um, we could spend a whole podcast on the the the, the government. Um, we need those guys clearly, and I've always said that it's, yeah. a, it's a three legged stool. You got private philanthropy, public philanthropy. Uh, you've got pharma, um, which is yeah. another rabbit hole, which you just touched yeah. on, and then you have the government, right? And you yeah. you're, you you hit a home run here because. And, and but you know what you said something early on, you didn't know anything about pancreatic cancer until you got it, and and I think that's part of the challenge, right? Like the, this community is super motivated, but I've always said we've got to motivate like seven other people for every one person in this space, and why seven? Because it's a numbers game, and if you look at you mentioned breast cancer, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. It impacts 250,000 people a year here in the United States. They raise a lot of money. So if we, you know, we're, we're 64,000 and change. So we've got to bring seven more people to the table than, than, than that are impacted in order to really create change and, and really motivate people. But, I, yeah. but this is where I'll leave this statement on. Do something now while you're not impacted because odds are you you might get impacted someone or someone in your family. If you do something now, the odds are when you're impacted, you'll have a better outcome. 
You know, there might be early detection, there might be better treatments. And so that's where we really have to push and advocate, you know, to get people involved. The insurance toxicity uh, or the, the, the financial toxicity, I should say, of, of cancer is, is nauseating, right? Like it's insane to think like, you know, you've got to, you know, the creon we see all the time because we have a patient aid program and it's, it's disgusting that, you know, creon costs as much as it does. Um, you know, there's something as we record this, there's a, there's a certain chemotherapy drug. And I just had a, a doctor, a world renowned doctor on yesterday and, and we, and it came up and, uh, uh, one of the platinum based drugs, which is a chemotherapy, uh, treatment. That's used for pancreas. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that short, there's a shortage of it right now. And you know why? Cause the generic costs like three cents to make. I, I don't know if that's the number, but it's very inexpensive to make the generic and it's just not. It's not, it's cost prohibitive for the pharma companies to make it because they really don't make any money on it. So, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. these are, yeah. these are things that are impacting people that are fighting, you know, that have a, have a shot. So like, if that's uh you know, if that's a battle cry here for our community to rise up and, and to reach out to your Congress uh, folks and, and to advocate for further funding for, you know, further regulation to continue to allow these medications from a pharmaceutical standpoint that yeah, pharmacy, the pharmaceutical companies may not make any money, but you know what? They're saving lives. People are going to live longer because they're on these drugs that don't cost the pharmaceutical companies anything. That's right. Hey, I've got about five minutes. So if there's other yeah, things so you want I wanna, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's wrap this up. I'm going to, let me just uh, make a show note. So I, I want to talk about a couple things and then I have a one question for you. So treatment wise, you've been on this treatment. Things have been good for you right now. Uh, so you're still in kind of like this maintain from a treatment standpoint, Mark? Well, I, I'm, uh, I had, I, I've had a recurrence going on for the last year and a half yeah. and uh, my, my chemo is, is exhausted. And the next stage is a, a clinical trial for me. Um, Health wise, I'm doing okay. There've been, look, th- 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 there's a lot of complications with some of the things that stave off this disease. The Whipple screws up your digestive system. So almost uh, everyone struggles with with upper and lower digestive issues. And th- th- I'm no uh, uh, exception to that rule. But my last scan was stable. Uh, they, the scan before, they started showing the tumor was growing again. Yeah. So when, when I've switched from CT scans to PET scans. They are so much better, but they are about 10 times as expensive as a, a CT scan, right? But they show so much better the picture of what's going on. So my last scan, it was it, the tumor didn't progress the way they thought it would. So rather than incur the side effects from the clinical trial, I decided to put it on hold. So for the next three months, I'm on hold with any chemo. But my liver is much more involved now. The spots are because there's too many and I'm on blood thinners. I bleed out. So my options uh, you know, are, are closing in on me. But I, I will say this, I, I'm an eight-year survivor, and attitude isn't everything, but it is an X factor. I've seen people who probably should have lived longer go much quicker because they just gave in to the cancer, and they didn't understand that their own attitude towards it is a factor. I'm, I'm not going overboard and saying it's the reason. A lot of people glorify, yeah, you had a great attitude. Well, I've seen people go in six months who had a great attitude. I've also seen yeah. people 
deal with this in a way that they're survivors, not victims. And I think it's critical to understand you can live with cancer, but you have to make adjustments and not compare your body to how it was when you first got it, but to just adapt and, um, you know, make whatever changes you can. Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. His whole family was wiped out by the Nazis. He survived two concentration camps and he wrote a, a brilliant book called Man's Search for Meaning. Central thesis in, in the book, as long the human spirit can endure anything, as long as there's meaning in the suffering. And I think that applies to cancer victims, or uh, survivors rather, uh, in, in this regard, that if you understand life and love and relationships and children and grandchildren and um, physical fitness and uh, biology and uh, your own body chemistry, and you use those things as a battery against cancer, you will live longer and you'll be happier. It's powerful stuff, Mark. I've got one last question for you here. Um, and then I want to share with our audience where they can follow you. Cause I know you said you, before we hit record, you do write a blog. Um, and where someone um, who might be listening to this might be going through a very similar situation and maybe would love to connect with you. But before we get there, last question here, loaded question. How do you, given your experience, define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? My definition for pancreatic cancer is a, uh, what do I want to say about it? It really is a uh, an assassin, all right? It really attempts to uh, reshape all of your body functions, your uh, how you eat, how you eliminate, how you thrive, how your blood recycles. I, I didn't mention this before, but I'm diabetic now after the Whipple surgery, so I'm dealing with that disease too. So it's a very scary illness, but I think you need to put the fear aside and be able to do battle with it and realize that it, it may take your body, but it's not inevitable. It'll take your spirit and it'll take your emotional uh, sense of equilibrium. You, you can manage as long as you have support uh, and family and friends are critical. You got to get rid of your uh, high maintenance relationships, focus on the lower maintenance ones and love yourself. Powerful stuff, Mark. Uh, last thing here for our audience listening at home or if watching this clip on uh, on YouTube when we get it out there, where's the best place for someone to connect with you if they want to talk to you, learn more about your journey, or maybe talk to you with a very similar experience? I, I'm on Facebook, and I'd be glad to contact anybody there. I also am an administrator on a Warriors-only website for survivors only and two other websites. So it's, it's a pancreatic cancer um, warriors, uh, survivors only is the one uh, website, and the other one is uh, pancreatic cancer NEGU, never ever give up, and that is a site for family members, supporters, and um, survivors. And then there's another one, pancreatic cancer support group, which is also for survivors and family. All these um, Facebook groups are really important, and I think they're integral in the. the speaking to people that are going through exactly what you're going through. And that's very helpful. Awesome. Mark, thank you for allowing us to share your journey with pancreatic cancer here at the podcast. 
Thanks for having me on, Dino. I like what you guys are doing. Keep it up. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today or what you saw on YouTube, feel free to share this episode. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you.